You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate Radio Show, recording live here from the Diamantina Show. You've got myself, Clancy Overall, flanked by the Eternal Cadet, Wendell Hussey. How are you, Wendell? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Always happy to be here as the Eternal Cadet. That's what you got to do, I think. Um, so, yeah, good to be with you and excited to talk to today's guest. Done plenty. Done all sorts. So. Yeah, no, he's um, he's someone we've had our eye on for a while and someone we share a lot of mutual friends with. Obviously, as a South Sydney lad, he can't be out here with us, so he's zooming in. And um, sound quality sounds good. They must have got the NBN there in Maroubra. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Macario D'Souza, Kid Mac, some might know him as. Thanks for having me, boys. Looking forward to it. We're here talking to you today because uh, you've got a film in cinemas as we speak, and uh, it's about to hit Paramount+. Plus. It's it's an interesting film that you've put together here coming out of the pandemic. It's it's about a, it's a coming of age story, you know, about young Australian kids facing those coming of age moments through the vessel, the vehicle of music festivals. I want to kind of talk to you about this film. Uh, I want to talk to you about how friendship and these themes kind of weave in between all the work you've done over the years. Is that a beach thing that you see this? Is, is that a puberty's blues thing that you guys kind of you're more aware of it than anyone else in the world? I guess um, coastal communities about you know that difference between teenager and adult. Look, I think it's uh, I've been obsessed with coming of age films at a young age. You know, um, I think growing up in in Maroubra, certainly you know we weren't short of colourful characters and experiences. So um, I felt I was in a unique position to tap into a lot of those experiences to tell a story like this. It's I guess you could say it sort of sits in that realm of puberty blues, but definitely a lot more gritty and from the streets. What was the inspiration behind this six festivals idea? Obviously, it's it's coincided, as you said, coming out of the pandemic and festivals are back on, so it's got that good feel to it. But what was kind of the, the inspiration or the drive behind making this one? It really was just my experiences as a touring artist for over 10 years. Um, you know, my friends and I were obsessed with festivals from the first ones that we used to just jump the fence to and have a great time because we couldn't afford the tickets to and then you know watching other artists having a time of their lives commanding a sea audience is something that inspired me to become an artist and then you know started getting my first festival slots playing in that brutal 12 p.m slot but no one was there except for 10 <laughs> of my mates all off their heads and <laughs> having a good time and then worked my way through the ranks and played some of the best shows and festivals in the country and around the world and um you know, throwing a story of teenagers growing up and all the growing pains and dealing with a lost one uh, or not dealing with it um, into that euphoric world of festivals, I just felt it was a super unique concept to a film. And I come from a documentary background. This is my first narrative script drama. So they say, write what you know. And I've tried to tap into something that was, mm. I knew like the back of my hand and also was going to be a unique selling point. So that's, that's kind of where it, where it all boiled down to, yeah. Yeah, and there's that documentary element of it in terms of the festival sets and the music sets and everything that we see there. How much did you decide to lean into that? Yeah, my non-negotiable when pitching this was that it had to be shot at real music festivals, which um, you know a lot of the investors and everyone just freaked out at because it it's challenging. No one does that. They build sets, they hire extras, but you just can't cheat thousands of people jumping up and down to you know some of the greatest bands in Australia. And, and I wanted to tap into my network of friends of artists that I've been touring with for years who are still touring and have them play themselves on stage and a bit of backstage just to give it that realness. And I feel like a lot of music 
films fall short because they they tend to be a little bit cheesy. Yep. You know, whether they're written and made by people who aren't necessarily from that culture or they get the opportunity to make a film later in life and try to reminisce when they were younger and just miss the mark a little bit. So I felt like, you know, being in that unique position of still having my finger on the pulse and um, coming from that world, we could make it as raw and bring my documentary flavor to it. As a filmmaker, as a documentary maker, Mac, you, as you said, you've got a unique uh, finger on the pulse for, for music and, you know, from your authentic experiences in that world. But just in general, I guess your upbringing and, uh, you know, the community you come out of gives you a good insight of, uh, good insight into a vaster kind of net of Australia compared to most filmmakers, particularly. You know, Maroubra is a multicultural kind of area. It has a, an element that reminds you a lot of the western suburbs and, t- you know, you've got, you know, that multiculturalism and egalitarianism, but you're also close enough to the city and you're technically in the eastern suburbs, so you get to see a bit of the wealth as well of Sydney City. Do you find that when you're having these discussions with, you know, people in the industry that actually sometimes you've got to remind yourself that you you know this world better than a lot of people sitting in, in, in offices that are kind of trying to put something together that people will like? Yeah, absolutely, man. I think for the most part, you know, sometimes I felt, I guess, out of place in these meetings, you know, full of suits coming mm-hmm. from where I come from. But at the same time, and only now I'm starting to realize that I have a unique voice and growing up where I grew up, you're right. You know, we had everything from the houses to the multiculturalisms to the, you know, multi-million dollar mansions across the road. We had the influence of like the urban sort of cityscape and a lot of bikey influence and then we had the, the beach culture and it was just this crazy melting pot that is pretty unique to australia and not many other places uh you know in australia has that so growing up we didn't know any better but looking back it's like it's it's a filmmaker's dream to have grown up in in, in that with so many inspirational kind of experiences um and, and wild stories and, and and characters but i think the there's a, there is a bit of a shift in the industry where you know the suits and understanding that these voices, they're a great representation of subcultures in Australia and they need to be supported and be treated as the expert to bring those stories to life. Because if you think about Australian cinema, there's been a lot of typical white bread privilege type stories for so long. And just like hip hop in Australia, things are yeah. shifting. You know, we, we never had, it was always like, um, they called it barbecue rap for years where it was a lot of <laughs> Anglo guys just rapping and Nowadays, you know, in the yep. last, I'd say, six years or so, there's been this amazing influx of, like, Pacific Islanders and, like, you know, Asian and, you know, African rappers coming out of Australia just making beautiful international hip-hop music. I think the same thing's happening in the film scene now where they're allowing us more textured skin type, like, roughies from, you know, <laughs> stranger parts of the world to tell our stories. But, yeah, it's exciting. Sydney has always known Maroubra, I guess. Anyone from New South Wales has known Maroubra. It's always beautiful beach with a, with a rougher edge to it. Some people love that and uh, some people steer clear of that. You, though, in your work and in, in, in the documentary you put together, Bra Boys, you took that to, you know, Maroubra became a household name. How did it feel, you know, and, and we, as I mentioned before, we recorded, we, we've interviewed Rennie Matur, you know, uh, former Dogs of War NRL player. We've interviewed Richie Vass, former big wave surfer, UFC fighter. I mean, and it's for good reason that Maroubra and the Bra Boys and, you know, the greater community are such an interesting kind of uh, conversation in Australia and, and particularly in Sydney. But how does it feel with what you've done and, and, you know, taking that to the world? 
having everyone obsessing over Maroubra, having everyone, you know, you had kids in schools in North Queensland that knew about the Bra Boys and everything that had happened there and the way of life down there. Do, do you feel like, um, well, did it feel like at one point everyone was looking at you? Yeah, definitely. It it was it was weird. Like as a filmmaker, it, it was incredible to have you know such a platform to launch my career and have someone like a Russell Crowe who narrated the the documentary get involved and take me under the wing for years. As a young man, it was a different story. I was um, frothing on on the attention. To be honest, you know, it was like we released the film and a lot of us went over to LA to launch the film in the US and we partied in LA for like six months with some of the biggest celebrities and just lapped it right up and when I should have been pitching my next idea but fuck that one up and um, basically on the flip side there was a lot of young crew all over the country just almost taking the wrong messages out of the film and trying to be tough guys and get into fights and thought it was cool to get arrested and you know do stints in and out of jail like I can only speak for myself but we've got a big crew of bra boys that you know we Sometimes we, we come from different places, different homes and have somewhat different beliefs. But for me, part of the reason of my follow-up film, Fighting Fear, which was about Mark Matthews and Richie Vass, was trying to correct some of those themes that I felt was misunderstood by young crew around the, the country. And just, I guess, as I matured as a, as a young man and a filmmaker, I try to put that into the next the next film because, um, yeah, I was just hearing some pretty horrific stories. And at the same time, I was touring as Kid Mac and, I'd be on the pisser before a show or after a show and some bloke blind drunk would come up behind me and just yell out, going, yeah, fucking bravo, fuck the police and let's yeah. bash some dogs. And it just, it was the wrong thing. I was just like, that's not what we yeah. made it for. But all in all, man, it, it was it was a global sensation. And, and for that, I, I'm, I'm definitely grateful. Yeah, you're right in the sense that uh, a lot of people kind of squeezed the fruit that was your documentary and, um, and started to really enjoy the pulp. The idea that, you know, postcode tattoos in coastal towns, even coastal towns that aren't hard, by the way. Port Macquarie, <laughs> you have no business, anyone from Port Macquarie getting <laughs> old English postcode tats. And then, of course, you get the River Boys in Home and Away and you get like, <laughs> you have this serious thread in Australian culture where, I mean, what you did do was identify something that happens in beach communities and uh, whether or not it ramped up after you guys gave it a voice or not, that's for those towns to point the finger at that. But I want to know, what is in the water in Maroubra? What's going on? I mean, I look mm -hmm. at the Bra Boys and I look at, you know, predominantly housing commission kids, all from different walks of life, all with different last names, you, you, you know, from D'Souza to Vasilik, you know, to Matua, to all kinds of names. Abaddon, what is it, do you think, that kind of sent you guys outside of the beach, be that through sport or through film or through you know anything they'd be well-known bra boys that actually don't even do anything just people know mm -hmm. them around sydney yeah look I, I think it was the the culture in the community that stemmed back from you know the the 70s of, of the surf culture and that really was a culture of out fight out route out party your mate and yep. that sort of just escalated and got implemented into all avenues of life and for me personally the my best mates in my generation, like Rennie and Mark and Rich, you know, we had, say, Kobe Abaddon, Sonny Abaddon, Jai Abaddon, those, those the Abaddon brothers, particularly Kobe, you know, he, he really made a name for himself in the big wave surfing and, and made a career out of it. And we saw how he lived his life and he'd just be away for 10 months of the year on surfing contests and whatnot, come back. And that was kind of nice to see that you could, you know, 
make something out of something. And from where we came from, everyone came from no money, came from really humble beginnings. And, you know, just seeing our parents struggle to keep the lights on, those kind of things just, I guess, feed into that, that want and that drive to like get out of the hood, stay out of the hood, you know, and that could either end up in a way that was negative if, if you didn't channel it right or you know there was this friendly competition like Rennie would make it to first grade John Sutton you know would lift the trophy for the bunnies and when Richie cracked it into the UFC these are all things that like are within your immediate best friend circle and only like pushes you to want to excel so there was this element of like friendly competition and constant support so I think a combination of all those things just got us to where we are and a few of us have made the most of it. Huge sporting and surfing element to it. I wanted to know how your journey into filmmaking started, you know, all the way back, back to the start. How did you fall in love with wanting to, to make documentaries, make films, to document stuff? Probably because I, I was a shit surfer compared to my mates. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, I had some of the best surfers that in my mates, and I used to love surf movies back in the day from guys like Taylor Steele, and they were, like, just best surf action, amazing soundtracks to them, and... My sister had gone away to America once and came back with this little camcorder and I must have been 15 or something and she would leave the house and leave that camcorder and I'd say, don't touch my, my camera and first thing I'd do is grab it, <laughs> run and then go down the beach and just film my mate surfing and after a session, you know, we'd film some parties in between and I'd just put all footage together and make some beats up for it, put it together and we'd have like kick back and have a bit of a screening with all the boys and I always have a laugh and I, I kind of love that idea of you know, going away, putting something together and then having this moment where you exhibit something and you get a reaction. It's almost, it's quite addictive. And that to me was me, was my wave chasing or my training for a fight type thing. And I was always creative and I, I guess I felt like I finally found my little outlet. So that's kind of where it started and then just kept taking a camera everywhere with me, learning the craft of editing. You know, I was obsessed with music. So like music production, it all kind of bundled in it wasn't until after school where I kind of went to uni and did a fine arts degree mastered in sort of you know film and music and started my I guess the Bravo's doco in that at that point um, it was like a major work in one of the one of the years that I had and became the pilot that went on to make the film so everything just kind of like one thing led to the other and it all kind of started just from shooting my mate surfing Fair enough. How did you balance those two worlds from bra boys to fine arts degree at university? What was it like walking between those two while that was happening? Did everyone back yeah. you? Uh, my mates, my close mates did. You know, I think I was I was a little bit against the grain of your stock standard, you know, bra boy on paper, I guess. And luckily I had a staunch older sister, two older sisters. My elder sister, Glenda, in particular, would always push me into – going to uni, getting a degree regardless of anything else I was doing. So I kind of listened to her a lot, which was a great voice to have. I think I was at that time the first bra boy to get a degree. And since then, we've had a whole bunch, which is great. I hated uni at the start. You know, I thought, fuck, this is this is whack. I shouldn't, you know, I should be surfing. I should be with the boys. And that mentality was everything that I try and tell young people to avoid now because it was so easy to just follow the pack and do your own, you know, do, just stay with the crew. But I stuck to it and, um, you know, never really gelled with a lot of the people at uni. We were just different walks of life. But I guess, you know, now that I'm starting to find my my own little crew and, and units with the world of filmmaking and I try to I tend to like connect more with other filmmakers who come from a similar background to me and telling similar stories. When we were interviewing Richie Vass, one of the questions we asked him was how come 
everyone in Maroubra knows how to punch on more so than you know any other beach town. And it kind of it was of an anecdote. I remember first time in Kings Cross, seeing all the different you know walks of life down there, all the different kind of tough guys and and you know party guys. And I remember seeing a big group of Maroubra lads in a pub, thinking actually there's a presence here. You know these guys aren't dressed like gangsters; they're dressed like surfies. Uh, but for whatever reason, there was a feeling that actually these guys were probably some of the uh, most rough and ready in the entire precinct of King's Cross. We asked Richie Vass that question, and he actually put it down to the Brazilians arriving in Marubra and bringing with them, you know, the Brazilian boxing gyms and, and that kind of stuff and, and, and how the multiculturalism really kind of forged a greater identity, you know, a, a greater kind of monoculture within the multiculturalism. Did you find that in your day-to-day? And, and do you find that with that brand, Bra Boys, you know, Rennie said to us as well, you know, some people have their own idea about what that is. But do you find, you know, you, you guys have the opportunity to take all of these different cultures with you, be that to become an incredible street fighter or uh, an incredible filmmaker? Yeah, I think I think Richie probably nailed it on the head. I think pre the Brazilians landing in Maroubra, we had a lot of incredible professional boxers, some of the mm-hmm. older boys, yep. Ronnie Reardon, Nate Rogers. There's a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, when we were young, we used to always go to Kobe's grandma's backyard and hit the pads and it doesn't matter how big or small or terrible of a fighter you were, you always got paired up with someone and you had to spar in front of everyone and that was a bit of a coming of age thing where like, you know, one day you'd just get belted and, and it just make you want to go back and like try and show that you're, you're, you're improving and I think there was this, looseness of just brawlers and and you know street fighters and whatnot and and i think when the brazilians did come in that whole jiu-jitsu thing they sort of like put parameters to that machoism and put a bit of like a i guess a routine and a structure to it where all of a sudden these brawlers became quietly confident guys who knew that could handle most situations so there was no need to like be overly aggressive unless things came to us sort of thing. So yeah. I think there was that. And um, I think a lot of that teaches you to be be a man, you know, like just having that confidence to know that you can handle yourself in situations is probably pretty important growing up, particularly in areas like Maroubra. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just think that also like starts to then play out in whatever avenue that, that you're, you're into, you know, particularly in the creative world, it's a whole world away. But um, yeah, it's just how we were raised, I guess. I want to talk about your family's story in Maroubra. Uh, were you part of that wave? I think my parents were part of the earlier South American influx in the 70s. Yep. There was a lot of South Americans coming around that time and they more wanted to be in and around the coast. My parents, <laughs> so funny how immigrants think there's an opportunity to buy a cheap old semi a street away from the water because all the other South Americans are there and they chose there and, you know, just years later you'd go to find out what they missed out on. But that, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, I mean, every family's got that story. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, you know, the idea of just wanting to remain within your community while mm. transitioning into a whole new culture. And then, um, yeah, the Brazilians that came later, it was nice to see because I hadn't really seen my own kind in Maruba for, for years and it wasn't until I think the boys started coming through in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, it was nice to see because it, it just meant I felt a little more kind of less less in no man's land and more a part of like this beautiful kind of crossbreed of cultures in Maroubra. Now, we go back to you finally put a camera on this thing. 
uh, Maroubra, Bra Boys. You showcase it as a major work at university. Where did Russell Crowe come into the mix? Was that a South Sydney Rabbitohs hookup or because having you know obviously the narration of Russell Crowe didn't improve the film you'd made, but it certainly added some flair to it. We're talking about the Gladiator here. Yeah, absolutely. It was the same time that Russell Crowe, Peter Holmes, Court were taking over the South Sydney Rabbitohs when we were towards the back end of finishing the film. John Sutton was cracking it in the first grade, and via Sutton, Russell had heard about the Bra Boys documentary. I think he'd seen maybe an Australian story on the Abaddon's and was interested. And yeah, via Sutton tried to reach out, and there was a couple of phone calls that we copped from from Russell, and we thought it was one of the older boys pranking us, so we'd always hang up and... Um, <laughs> And then Sutt was the one that told us, hey, Russell's been trying to get a hold of you to have a chat. And um, long story short, we um, set up a meeting, set up a screening of a rough cut, and um, we had a temporary narrator on it, which was just a temp voice, no name. And he made a comment on how bad the uh, the narrator was, but he thought that the film was great. And we said, well, you know, why don't we, why don't, would you lend your voice to it? And he said yes. And I think, you know, back then, Russell's a strategic man. He probably – was seeing this documentary as a possible film that he could turn into a scripted drama mm-hmm. as his directional debut. Russell coming from, you know, those humble working class beginnings as well, was looking for something that was gritty and, you know, in tone with what he's all about. And um, coming from that South Sydney world, it all sort of made sense. So, yeah, he definitely um, elevated it, took it to another level. There's a lot of avenues that were opened up because of his connections. And um, I think it was a big, reason why the film ended up becoming one of the highest grossing uh, docos in Australian history. I mean, I'll always remember the green and red Armani suits that he took the Rabbitohs to the uh, the premiere in on the, on the red carpet. That was, uh, I mean, that might even been the first time an NRL team went to a premiere of anything. Yeah, he's just always <laughs> thinking outside the box. A whole foot, like bus just pulled up in, in the middle of Market Street, State Theatre in the city, whole squad got out, Armani suits, red and green, and it, it definitely uh, it made a splash, that's for sure. He knows how to make a, make a splash when he wants to. So then you, you, you've you got that under your belt. Incredible debut. You've got Kid Mac, you're touring, as you said, starting with the midnight slots where um, basically the, your main audience is the subjects of a documentary you've just made. <laughs> that Kid Mac has been you know, a DNA between all your work, I guess, as a performing touring artist. You make another documentary about the boys with Richie. And then where did you find yourself saying, okay, scripted narrative, six festivals? So after Fighting Fear, which was you know a great follow-up, we were able to sort of start to get some accolades and win some actor awards, which was great. At the time, I was getting a lot of commercial work. I was doing a lot of work with artists, record labels, music videos, international acts, local acts. And the work was coming in thick and fast where I had to set up a production company and build a team around that. And that's what we did for years. And that idea of having a production company, we, we were doing a lot of work with music festivals, shooting a lot of the content, docos, and I was just really keen to, to you know, leap over to, to drama. And it, it's just not an easy thing that you can just decide, hey, I want to do drama and off you go. It's um, you, you start at the back of the line again, you know, and, and the meetings you're having with funders and distributors, it's you become the new kid again. Mm-hmm. And um, I really had to prove myself so I put some money into my own money into just shooting a proof of concept on a short version of six festivals. And um, I never really backed myself as a writer to start with as far as scripts go, because I'd never really done a, a feature script. I'd always written shorter stuff and was working with co-writers to get it to a point and then realized that 
this world I was writing was my world and the voices were mine. And so I sort of, for the next 10 drafts, just grabbed the bull by the horns and finished the script and people started really liking the script. And this was over a three-year period. And then um, we finally got Screen Australia on board, who is, you know, Australia's governing body that taxpayers' money gets allocated to films that um, people, they feel need to be heard. And we got a half a mil grant from Screen Australia, which then triggered a lot of other state agencies to pique their interest and see mm-hmm. what this was all about. We got a record label on board in Sony Music who wanted to utilize some of their roster on our film. Of course. The festivals were excited. And then the final piece of the puzzle was Paramount Plus. Obviously, we had stoppages of like bushfires, floods, and then the pandemic, which as painful as they were, the silver lining was it slowed things down and allowed more people to wait, catch up and hear about this project. And Paramount Plus was one of those. So I went in a pitch to Paramount Plus, you know, it was barely 20 minutes into my pitch and we'd done a deal there and then and they were they were psyched on it. They wanted the global rights, which was amazing. It just meant that everyone was actually going to have we're going to have a proper budget to make this film. And we got into production 2020, but pandemic slowed us down. So it's been a couple of years of a hard slog. Can you tell me, you said non-negotiable was filming in music festivals. Where have you managed to do that in the last three years? Yeah, it's a tricky one, man. It was like, <laughs> you know, we were 2019, we were ready to shoot. And uh, at the time, we had a couple of festival partners that just had to get dropped because the government in New South Wales were waging war against drugs. There was a few ODs happening at festivals yeah. that essentially was making it hard for festivals to run. They were give, making them have extra police presence and all, all sorts of parameters that um, just made, meant they couldn't run anymore. So then 2019, we went to shoot Lost Paradise and then that was um, cancelled because of the bushfires. And then we had a replacement a couple of months later that was flooded, it was cancelled. And then the pandemic hit, so we had lockdowns, and it just seemed like this this film wasn't going to get made. And then there's a couple of Queensland festivals that looked like they were going to run in between a couple of the lockdowns. Um, So it just meant trying to look at different locations to get our festival stuff first. So it really was just finding little pockets where, you know, festivals were running, grabbing that content first, and then trying to work out the rest of the puzzle later. What a process. Um, I just wanted to ask about the actors and actresses you've got in here. How involved were you in finding these guys? Because I notice some of them come from festival areas. Yaz, who plays Summer, from Byron Bay. And then we've got Razzie King, who plays Maxie, born in Mullum. They're all familiar, like a, a lot of these names with that yeah. kind of culture. Were you involved in the casting? Absolutely, because this was my baby. I kind of was, you know, super hands-on, almost micromanaging, and I've got pretty intense OCD that this was next level when it came to casting. So <laughs> I casted Rasmus King first. I found him through our surfing network. Someone had told me about him. I wanted to cast Maxie and Kane, two brothers in the film, as real brothers in real life. And Rasmus has got an older brother, Caius, both professional surfers, never acted before, but had amazing, hilarious, charming content on their Instagram that mm-hmm. I thought – they had the spark, you know, they definitely had yeah. that star mm. quality. And after working with them closely, knew that I could get what I needed out of those guys and then built the rest of the cast around them through our casting agent. They found me Yasmin, who plays Summer, incredible singer. She had this quirk about her that was very similar to Summer in my mind. And then James was played by a kid called Rory Potter who had been in the, the dressmaker and does a lot of theatre and, and was just a real likeable, warm dude. And then lastly, we had Guyala Bales from Brisbane, who's an incredible indigenous poet, activist, model. I tried so many different Marlies for, for that role. And for whatever reason, they fell through, didn't feel right. 
And at the 11th hour, I'd seen, I think it was an Australian story on Quaden, her, her brother Quaden, and, mm-hmm. and saw her interview and she just popped on the screen. She was super eloquent. And uh, when I researched her, I saw that she was a poet. She was great with words. She's clearly connected to that urban culture and the role is an up and coming female rapper. And, you know, after talking to her a few times, I knew she would, she had that star quality too. And she was probably the fastest learner out of everyone. You know, I'd write songs for her. Within two hours, she'd have them down. The next day, she'd have them perfected. And the day after that, she had to perform them in front of thousands of people at a real festival. So, like, she was quick and she's got a, a massive future ahead of her. Caius, on the other on the other hand, not on the other hand, but I should say, he was the furthest removed from his personality. He played, like, this Eshe lad kind of drug-dealing fuckwit brother who also surfed, again, pulling from characters from Maruba. And, um, <laughs> it's fun- I feel it's like you funny. might have met him before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, it's funny, after the, the premiere, you know, all, a lot of the, my mates, the boys came up to me and just go, mate, Kane, that character is so on point. Like, he just felt like one of the boys down the beach, you know. And so, he's such a lovely dude and real lovely to his brother and, and he was the furthest progressed from, from his real personality. So, I think that balance of where they all came from and what they brought was cool because it wasn't all polished, glossy actors who were, you know, trained and not understanding of this world. You had the, the brothers who were also, you know, rough around the edges, grew up in the surf community. So I just wanted that rough roughness as well and not too polished. That must be exciting for you as well. Obviously, it's your debut for a big drama thing like this, but giving all of these kids a start and helping them build up their careers, that must be an exciting part of it too. Yeah, I reckon, man. I've always been frothing on, you know, just scoping out talent, whether it's in music, whether it's, you know, in acting. I, I, I tend to, like, take a bit of pride in that. And I, these kids have... I should say young people have a, such a big uh, future ahead of them. And, yeah, I'm, I reckon like Ras, for example, he knows he's done two films in the same time, both are coming out in the cinemas this month. The other film was called Bottom Rocket with uh, Luke Hemsworth and Isabel Lucas. And I just think he's, a, he's the next little Heath Ledger in the making. And um, to be a part of the start of these guys' careers, to see where they go to, is it's, it's part of it. It's exciting, man. I can't wait to see what they do. I mean – in your field, there's a lot of time spent in front of a camera or behind a camera and a lot of time spent in front of a screen, you know? So much of that is done in dark rooms. How do you now transition into, you know, this new this new kind of responsibility and this new kind of role you play? Once upon a time, you were the documenter, you know? You were transcribing and you were capturing something and then delivering it without getting in too involved in what's going on in front of the camera. Now you're actually moving into the role of kind of man management, you know, almost coaching. How do you go with, you know, particularly young kids with their own shit going on? Who You know, who, who knows what's going on in their lives? They've, I know the kids, I know you didn't like to use the word kids before, but I, I look back to Splendor in the Grass and I was thinking, these kids have had a rough couple of years. You know, their formative yeah. years are spent in, you know, they missed out on schoolies, they missed out on yeah. their school formals, they missed out on all this shit. So the kids right now, be it those ones that were sloshing in the mud at Splendor in the Grass or was it those ones that you had, you know, on set have had very different kind of crucial formative years than than what any of us can remember. How was it, you know, not only are these actors you've got coming into this world of being in, on screen, but they're also coming out of this bizarre couple of years. Yeah, it's funny you say that. There's been a certain generation who have missed out on music festivals completely for mm. the last three or four years. Mm. These kids were a part of that generation, so they were experiencing festivals for the first time 
while we were shooting the film. So <laughs> half the time it was hard to keep their focus and attention because they were just you know, wide-eyed and starry-eyed with all, meeting all the artists and just getting in the mosh and just, just loving it. But, um, man, they're so professional and um, switched on that they just – they, you know, got the job done, and then and any time we we sort of wrapped for the day, you'd have to just be careful because they just you'd lose them in the crowd, and they just want to go and party. So, <laughs> but I don't know. I think for me, I just I've had some great mentors in my life, and I've just pinched you know different traits from those mentors that have worked well with me when I was young, and try to implement that with younger kids that I work with. I think mentors and mentorship is such an important part of growing up, and I think um, you know for those who have lived interesting lives like most of us i think it's it's only it's only fair to give back and and teach them the ways that or right from wrong or or at least show them the opportunities that you wish you had well we look forward to it mate six festivals as we said in cinemas now and soon to land on paramount plus congratulations mac sounds like you've had a bit of fun fairly stressful time but a a fairly (laughs) fairly fun time putting this all together and uh, we hope to hear more from you and see more from you excited to see what's next thanks boys appreciate you having me it's been fun